Support for this episode of Science Moab comes from the Colorado Plateau Foundation, a Native-led philanthropic institution supporting Native-led organizations, protecting water, sacred places, and endangered landscapes, preserving Native languages, and uplifting sustainable community-based agriculture. Since 2012, the Colorado Plateau Foundation has awarded $2.8 million to over 100 Native-led initiatives across the Colorado Plateau. More information is available at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Christina Young, and today we're speaking with Talia Boyd about her work with tribal nations on the Colorado Plateau. Well, I am Dinesh, so I'm going to introduce myself in Navajo first. So I am born and raised on the great Navajo Nation, and I'm originally from Arizona. I come from a very rural community. My community was impacted by uranium legacy waste. And then my family moved to New Mexico. We moved to Church Rock and I found out that it was the home of the 1979 Church Rock spill, which is the largest radioactive spill in US history to this date. And so I was heartbroken because I realized that no matter where I went on my homelands that we were subjugated to really by the U.S. government, right, in compliments of the Cold War. So we have a ton of um, abandoned uranium mines where our homelands have been impacted tremendously by extractive industries. Um, so this really spurred my passion to start advocating on behalf of myself, my family, and my communities, and really for, for everybody. So that's kind of my background. That's how I started getting involved. I started uh, educating myself on a lot of these issues. I started volunteering and eventually started working with a lot of really great organizations and doing the work and pushing the issues and really amplifying the voices of Native peoples, specifically in the Colorado Plateau region. So um, I'm also the Cultural Landscapes Program Manager for the Grand Canyon Trust. And um, I've held this position for about three years now. I noted your, your title with the trust is the director of cultural landscapes. And I, I wanted to hear what, what that term means to you. Well, you know, a cultural landscape from my perspective is all of Turtle Island really and, and the globe in general, essentially everywhere. The Holy Land is everywhere. And that comes from the Sioux Nation. But it really breaks down the native perspective of how connected and how we originate from this, these homelands. So when we talk about a cultural landscape, it really is talking about our traditional homelands before you know, the so-called United States was created. Our ancestors pre-exist the so-called United States. And so for those reasons, we have a deep responsibility rooted in being stewards of this land. You know, we don't see ourselves as owners of this land. It's really, we consider the land family and we've built relations with the natural world since the beginning. And these are regenerative relationships that we've recognized and respected for over you know, hundreds of years, uh, maybe thousands of years. These are the teachings that we instill in our children and these are embedded in our languages, our ceremonies, um, our worldviews and our overall life ways. And so when we talk about cultural landscape protection, it really is talking about protecting 
ourselves as humans too, uh, as native peoples, again, we have those relationships. And so we, we recognize that whatever happens to the land will, will also happen to us. We are protectors in that way and we understand our responsibilities. The cultural landscape is, is really all of our homelands. That's how it is considered within a, a native perspective. You know, a lot of our audience is used to words like public lands and, you know, thinking about these places early on, you mentioned bears years, a lot of, I think, non-native people's minds go to public lands and, and versus private lands. And, and what I hear you describing is something so much bigger than that kind of mandated <laughs> distinction. And I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on how public lands and especially a, a conservation organization that has a history of public lands work, how all of that kind of intersects. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we talk about public lands, they are ancestral lands. And as Native peoples, we don't recognize those invisible boundaries that have been established by the federal government or the state governments, right, by our colonizers. <laughs> and, as, you know, to this day, we still don't recognize those those. Um, invisible boundaries. Our homelands exceed those boundaries and they expand outside of those boundaries. And so when we think about the land, we think about it in that way, right? In that indigenous thinking is very nonlinear. Um, and so we approach it in that way. And this is the difference between indigenous thinking um, and non-indigenous thinking really is that the linear and the non-linear ways um, that we connect and, and connect ourselves to the land. And so again, yeah, this is why it's very difficult for us too to even advocate for it because I, I recently organized a teaching series um, titled Native Perspectives on Tribal Consultation. And one of my panelists, Regina Lopez-Whitescomb mentioned, um, she's from the Ute Mountain Ute tribe of Towak. And their, their homelands are both in Colorado and in Utah, right? Um, and she uh, advocates for bear's ears. And she comes, um, she advocates for the White Mesa Ute community, which is impacted by the White Mesa Mill, the last operating conventional uranium mill. Um, but she highlighted the fact that when she went to the state legislature in Utah and tried to lobby decision makers and educate them on the importance of Bears Ears and her responsibility as a Ute woman to be there to, to speak and to protect, you know, as a land protector, as a water protector. And she was dismissed by state uh, decision makers. They told her that she had no right to be there because she wasn't a Utah resident and that she had come from Colorado. And so these are the kinds of ridiculous obstacles that native peoples have to deal with, right? And again, we don't see those invisible lines. We don't recognize them. And again, our, our ancestors pre-exist so-called America. So we will continue to fight for our homelands and we will continue to dismantle those obstacles that are constantly being thrown against us. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just a really poignant example and I appreciate you sharing it. I hear this point and then I hear, you know, you also talking about specific examples growing up with environmental contamination on, on these cultural and ancestral lands. And I was wondering if you could outline some of these, these issues that are facing these landscapes and the spe specifically the ones that, you know, you've been involved in um, here on the Colorado Plateau. Absolutely. I've worked a lot on nuclear and uranium issues prior to working with the Grand Canyon Trust. But with my work with the trust, working on Bears Ears and Grand Staircase, and also the White Mesa Mill, 
you know, a lot of that really is the desecration of our sacred landscapes um, and our sacred spaces. And again, this goes back to um, desecration by extractive industries who, uh, that could be uranium, oil and gas, coal, right? On Navajo, we've experienced all of those. And the surrounding tribal communities have also been impacted by those similar issues. And we're left with the contamination that comes out of all of these um, extractive industries. And not to mention the water that is required for mining, right? And in the Colorado Plateau, we don't have surface water. All we have is groundwater. And so when our groundwater is contaminated and compromised, there really is um, no way of going back, right? It really is like mixing creamer and coffee and trying to separate the two after it really just does not happen right and to this day you know all of these mining companies always argue like we can put the land and the water back to pre-mining conditions but this has never been accomplished you know and this is something that again our communities are left with that waste and so this comes out again of the extractive industries who have inundated the Colorado Plateau, but within Bears Ears and also within Grand Staircase, within Chaco, with some, within some of our very sacred ancestral homelands that are now so-called public lands, um, there's been a lot of looting and vandalism, right? So our ancestors have been dug up and put in museums, our, um, our pottery, our baskets, you know, everything from that historical context has been dug up and put into, into museums, even across the ocean in other countries, right? People are selling our sacred items in auctions, right, in Paris or whatnot. And so this, again, is very um, detrimental to Native peoples and to our sacred spaces. But this is what's happening within the Colorado Plateau. And again, I talked about water contamination. It, you know, that comes from those extractive industries, but also the water infrastructure that's lacking within our tribal communities is also very, very apparent now, especially with this global pandemic, right? And so these are also issues that have, have been here for quite some time, but, you know, people are starting to talk about it more and more now again. Um, and so we got to keep that ball rolling and keep that momentum going and just um, really continue to educate, uh, educate everybody on what's happening here. As an organizer, you know, what you, you mentioned education, but I'd love to hear the ways that you have worked and those that you've organized with to make inroads in trying to tackle these issues. Like, what does that really look like on the ground? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of hard conversations, right? <laughs> it's a lot of um, putting yourself in uncomfortable spaces and pushing back um, on white supremacy, really, because there are systems that have been established that have alienated our tribal communities um, that are very, you know, even just, just again, this way of thinking, um, it's very foreign to us. It's even now, even through genocide and colonization, you know, this is why we're still here because our traditional knowledge systems have upheld us and we've, we've invested in our traditional knowledge systems because this is what we were taught right through our ancestral teachings what it looks like on the ground it's 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 not pretty right i mean in tribal communities we don't have the resources or even the access to advocate for our own communities because of the contamination you know a lot of people are sick a lot of people have died a lot of people who have this knowledge of what has happened in our communities are no longer here right like the former uranium miners and all with, you know, their surviving family members. 
Um, some of those folks, you know, aren't educated in Western knowledge. And so they, they don't know how to advocate on behalf of um, their families sometimes. And so, you know, that goes back to extractive economies and how our, our traditional economies have been impacted by these outside extractive economies and really have overwhelmed and put a deep scar in our tribal communities. And so we're trying to shift from that into a just transition, right? And really taking back power and um, recognizing that the land degradation that has happened on our homelands because of extractive industries, but also working really closely with, you know, traditional knowledge keepers, people who have these knowledge systems in place and recognizing that that we need to connect them with our younger generations, right? And so really having these hard conversations again and trying to build bridges. So some of the conversations out of this teaching series that I organized too is how they're, you know, and the Bears Ears model is a great example because this was five tribes that had historical tension, but really came together to heal. And this was the overall message and continues to be the message. And the goal with the Bears Ears initiative is really bringing people together and, and the tribes recognizing that whatever historical tensions we had uh, now has to be put aside and that uh, we all need to move forward and heal and advocate for our homelands because this is really the only way that we can move the dial. One thing I keyed in on kind of earlier in what you were saying was the balance of power, right? And so this idea of, of Native people, Native communities, Native voices taking back power. And, you know, a lot of people maybe who are listening to Science Moab are, are Western white scientists, right? And there's power there. When you have that background and that education, you have a level of power. And I was wondering what would it look like within the confines? Okay, so I, you know, I have a doctorate in ecology. I write papers. I advise land managers when they come to me, what would it look like for me or others within my position to change, to help, to consciously change the power balances? Does that question make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that really, again, goes back to making space and building rapport with tribal communities and, and stepping back really, right? And pulling in tribes to the table, because again, we don't have the resources, we don't have the capacity or the bandwidth, right? I mean, even Navajo Nation, we're, we're, we're like the largest tribe in North America, but even then, you know, we struggle with resources, capacity, and bandwidth. So imagine it for the smaller tribes, right? They're, they struggle with advocating for our sacred homelands because of that. And so... What that looks like, again, you know, I mean, tribal consultation right now is very minimal. Um, and hopefully that will shift, right, with Auntie Deb in office holding it down and educating folks too. Um, but it really is going back and understanding and doing your homework as land managers, right? Because I think this is something that came up in our, in our teaching series again, too, is the fact that traditional knowledge is just, if not better than a PhD, right? <laughs> our, again, our traditional knowledge systems have been in place for generations. I mean, these are regenerative relationships that have been instilled for generations. So, the, you know, there's no competing there, really. So, what really needs to happen is the recognition of how traditional knowledge is just as equal, if not better, 
than Western knowledge and science. Making space for that when it comes to land management and even having these conversations, again, with land managers or decision makers, but really planting those seeds and having those hard conversations with folks and letting them know, like, you know, you're on native land. No matter where you are, if it's private land, I don't give a hoot, you're on native land. And so recognizing that and then, you know, acknowledging that, again, tribes don't have the capacity to necessarily be there, even though we want to. So it really is um, providing resources, support, space, and just shining light and amplifying tribal voices when it comes to these issues. Because again, there's systems, white supremacy has built systems to really alienate us and exclude us from all of these conversations and all of these spaces, right? So a lot of y'all have access to universities and labs and whatnot, scientists, you know, <laughs> you're, you're in powerful spaces. So giving up some of that power by stepping back and acknowledging the first peoples of this of this land, which are the native peoples, right? And acknowledging that our traditional knowledge is very much sophisticated and it's very much needed right now, especially with the climate crisis that we're all in. And, you know, I, I've heard you twice draw the line between climate crisis and indigenous knowledge. And I was wondering, can you just talk to, to that intersection that you see? Yeah, well, you know, Native peoples, we, I believe we're the solution to the climate crisis. Our traditional knowledge systems, again, have been in place for so long, and we have these regenerative relationships that we know how to take care of the natural world. And we have ceremonies, we have songs, we have offerings, and our land does not understand the English language. Again, there's over 574 tribes in, in North America alone. And so it requires each of our tribes to go to these sacred spaces to provide offerings, to provide prayers, and to provide songs, because this is what our land needs, right? And for the longest time, our land hasn't had that. And so our land misses us, and we miss our land. And there's deep trauma, again, that goes back into the land loss that still exists within tribal communities. So, you know, we're mourning each other, really. Our land is mourning us, and we're mourning our land. You know, you see a lot, I always say this too, you see a lot of natives wearing black, you know, and maybe that's a, just a subconscious thing, but we are mourning our land, right? That's how I see it, but it goes back to that. And so our traditional knowledge systems have so many teachings embedded in them. It's very sophisticated and it's very complex. And some of these things aren't to be shared with non-Native peoples. And so again, this is why it's important for Native peoples to take that lead when it comes to the climate crisis, because we still have that those knowledge systems in place. We still have our languages, some of us. Some of us still have our ceremonies. We know how to do this. We know how to talk to the natural world, to recreate that balance. And that's what's needed right now, right? This is where, this is why, um, again, our native relatives understand. And I think we're really stepping in, stepping into these spaces and into these um, spaces of leadership and taking that space proudly and really letting folks know, like, it's time. It's time that you all start giving power back because we know what we're doing. We've always known what we were doing. And, and now our, our knowledge systems are needed, right? And so we're ready. We're ready to lead. We're ready to share. But at, a, at the same time, it's, um, 
you know, we have so many barriers pushing up against us that um, it really does require our friends and allies to really help us make those spaces as well. My last question was kind of what do you see as the way forward? And I think you have woven that into the whole conversation. And so I was wondering instead, what are some things that you are working on? I just really want to acknowledge um, all the, the great, wonderful Native leaders who have come before, who've really laid down this path for a lot of us to continue to do the work. You know, there's a lot of trauma that is resurfacing now within Indian country with all of these residential schools and these mass graveyards of our children and our ancestors. So again, you know, these conversations are very hard, but I want us to all recognize that these are the spaces that we've, that we have been in since colonization, right? These uncomfortable spaces. Um, So it really requires us to step outside of our comfort zones to connect. And that isn't always easy, but I really encourage people to try. You know, that's what's going to move the dial. Our kids will have something in the future. As a mother, I, you know, that's, that's what I always go back to. I think about our children and not just Native children. I think about all of our children and I don't want them to live in a contaminated world, right? And so this really requires a lot of hard work and sacrifice on the people that are here and who are here and now. So um, let's start doing this work. Let's, let's come together. Let's, let's work hard. And um, thank you for making space and time for me to share. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And yeah, for having these conversations and continuing them. It's very appreciated. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter is by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.